In today's world, technology is everywhere. From the entertainment we consume, to the content we create, and the data that we distribute. Here at The Edge, we explore how the discoveries of today and the innovations of tomorrow shape and evolve the way we go about our everyday lives. Let's dream a world where your imagination is your only limitation. Let's open the curtain, peer into the future, and see what's waiting for us. Are you ready? Welcome, everyone, to The Edge, a TMG Corp production. I'm Drew Null. And I'm Brad Furnish. And we have a very special guest for our listeners and viewers, a man that truly needs no introduction, but for some reason now seems to think that he's formerly famous and important, Scott McNeely. Scott co-founded Sun Microsystems and was their CEO from 1984 to 2006, achieving one of the longest executive corporate tenures to date. Scott went on to chair the board of directors that brokered the sale of Sun to Oracle in 2010. Since his departure from Sun Microsystems, Scott and his organization, Kariki, has been working tirelessly to create a free and open architecture for virtual learning. Scott, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on today. It's great to be on board. Thanks. Uh, so, Scott, one of the things that we ask all of our guests on the show as a bit of an icebreaker, uh, if you will, if you could just briefly describe maybe the most unexpected event in your career, uh, whether that's a positive event or a character building moment, uh, just some short little nugget for our listeners. Yeah, well, it's hard because uh, uh, I had many uh, apocalyptic moments in my career, <laughs> many of them self-made. But uh, the one that really, you know, got me going was at 27, four, four of us, we were all 27 years old, founded Sun Microsystems. I was, I had three years business experience, which was more than the other three founders combined. And about two years into the business, uh, they fired the chairman and the president uh, and asked me to take over as, as CEO. And I was 29 at the, 29 at the time. And I'd been in the computer industry for two years, barely knew what a disk drive was before I even started at Sun Microsystems. The company was uh, burning cash like crazy. We, we were losing a half a million dollars on two million in revenue uh, per month. Uh, the product had a mean time between failure of about 30 seconds for 50% of the product we shipped out to the marketplace. And, and about a third of the product was sitting on the show or on the factory floor with bugs in it that made them unshippable. And uh, I had a management team that was uh, very, very uh, concerned because the board had just taken out the top two people in the company. That was a, that was kind of a defining, uh, oh my gosh, what do I do now moment in my career. Yeah, for sure. I'd say so. Um, and obviously you're, you're fairly young when that happened. So, you know, from an experience and being ready perspective, you know, was that a factor of being ready for your education? Was it a combination of some previous life work experiences? Like, were there some things that you just had to learn on the fly? Like, what did that look like? Um, very little of it had to do with education. Um, okay. I, I, I give my uh, very excellent high school uh, education at a very nice private school in Michigan, my Harvard undergraduate degree in golf and economics, and my MBA at Stanford, uh, where we excelled in weekend boondoggles in Northern California. <laughs> I give them very, very little credit for uh, getting me to where I was. I think working for a buck seventy-five an hour for Roger Penske in uh, uh, Southfield, Penske Chevrolet, uh, washing cars and the car rack and doing every other job inside of a car dealership and working on 
uh, the tire team on the, on the races on the weekends. Uh, sitting at the uh, chair of my dad, who was uh, vice chairman of American Motors and president of AMF, and learning about business by listening to him talk on the phone or uh, reading his uh, his uh, briefcase uh, every night when he was having a cocktail and that sort of thing. Those are the things that I think mattered more. And then just plain luck and hard work. Um, nothing 80 or 90 hours a week can't fix. So for you, Scott, you know, you said that you, you had a, a kind of almost a, a baptism by fire into, into sun and, you know, where, you know, being elevated into that CEO position and, um, you know, a lot of the things that you felt were most meaningful for you were, were things that weren't learned in the classroom for somebody that, you know, maybe, you know, in that early in their career or, uh, you know, maybe making some sort of a transition into their career. What, what advice would you give to somebody in that position that that's starting out or wanting to be successful? Uh, just some things that, uh, you know, to your point, they didn't teach you in the classroom, but you learned on your own. Uh, what would be some things that would be helpful for somebody else that you learned? A lot of things. I mean, another job that really shaped me was my first job out of college, out of Harvard, a little preppy in a pinstripe suit, went to Centralia, Illinois, and worked in the uh, automotive operations uh, plastics division, making Corvette hoods for the uh, St. Louis Corvette Stingray plant. And let me tell you, being a foreman in in that shop, sweatshop, 120 degrees, dust everywhere. Mm -hmm. These people are living in Centralia, Illinois, are probably going to be there the rest of their lives. There is no career path out of the factory in Centralia, Illinois. You're dealing with people who don't have this lifelong, hey, I'm going to become a a billionaire kind of attitude. And all of a sudden there I am at 21 and they're working for me. Most of them have kids my age and and, uh, they're looking at me like, who are you? And I learned very, very quickly. They had me running all over the shop, doing all kinds of stuff, busy work, nothing. The forklift wasn't there. They didn't have gloves or their gloves had holes in them or the rivet uh, machine was jamming or this, that, and the other thing. They did more stuff to make me run around at 800 miles an hour. (laughs) And I finally figured out they were all chuckling, just watching me go to see if they could ever wear me out. Uh, They'd laugh at me because I was so tired. I'd come in with one uh, pair of tie shoes and the other was a loafer that didn't match, you know, because I'm dressing in the dark and tired and all. And after about eight weeks of this, all of a sudden there was nothing to do. I didn't need to go find a forklift driver. I didn't need to get the inspector over. I didn't need to get this done or that done or whatever. And the little anvil that kept jamming, I went over and I was going to get it and fix it because I'd learned how to take it apart. She goes, no, stop. She reaches over her shoulder, grabs a hammer, hits the side of the anvil. Boom, it pops up. It's ready to go. She throws the hammer. It flips back, lands exactly where it was. She's done this four trillion times. And she just laughs. laughs. And she says, get out of here. And for the rest of my career as a foreman, which was about another month, all I did was stand there and tell jokes. That's all they wanted. They knew how to do their job. They got it all done. And I learned your job is to work for those who work for you, to do whatever they need to get their job done and to ask them what you can do to make their job go better and easier. Not they don't work for you. If I'd gone in there and started bossing them around, I'd have been dead meat. The good news was I was so ignorant of what was going on. I didn't know what to do and I didn't know how to boss anybody around. And I felt like the, the dumbest kid in the room. 
And I got the best compliment after three months of managing them when they heard I was leaving to go to another factory to uh, uh, be a plant uh, scheduler. They said, you're the best boss we've ever had. And we're sorry to see you go. And given how it started, where they looked at me like, who the heck are you? Well, not exactly <laughs> heck. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that I learned very, very, uh, I, I learned about the inverted management structure where, and, and as a CEO, I always tried to think that I worked for my employees, not they, they worked for me. Absolutely. That's some great real world experience right there, for sure. Yeah, I always find it interesting. You know, I think we've all, you know, had our run in terms of, uh, you know, types of bosses that we've had and leaders that we've set under, whether it's in a direct, you know, manager position or mentors or those kinds of things. And, you know, me personally, I've always enjoyed those, to your point, Scott, that that they're, you know, uh, more willing to come beside you and support you. And and it's kind of a co-jointed effort rather than, you know, somebody standing, you know, at, at the top of the, you know, the, the, the building or at the end of the table telling you what to do. Um, you know, to and end, to then I had a lot of management, um, things that I made up. Uh, we were participative, but not consensus that mm-hmm. brought people in, but I'm not going to wait till we all agree. If we all agree, everybody's agreed. If everybody's agreed, the industry's agreed, the industry's agreed. They're already there bunkered in moats, landmines, all the rest of it. You're not, you've got to, you got to have a controversial strategy. Yeah. If everybody agrees, then it's not controversial. If it's not controversial, there's no differentiation. If there's no differentiation, there's no uh, pricing power. If there's no pricing power, there's no profits. There's no company. The real hard part is being controversial and correct. In participative but not consensus means you have to have people who agree and commit, disagree and commit, or get the heck out of the way. Or you get them the heck out of the way. So you got to have managerial courage to get people who won't. You know, you can sink a putt many different ways. You can hit it high and let it die in. You can hit it hard like a laser beam or somewhere in between. There's many different ways. You just all as a team have to pick how are we going to do this and we're all going to execute and commit to our strategy. I also think that the right answer is the best answer. Second best answer is the wrong answer. Uh, is, is second best answer is the wrong one. And the worst answer is no answer. And just no answer, I think, is in, in, if you're in technology and, and all, all businesses are technology businesses today. You better move fast or you're going to get sure. blown away. You know, sometimes you're the windshield, sometimes you're the bug. And let right. me tell you, being the windshield is way, way better. <laughs> you can hear how I speak. Uh, and that's how I tried to motivate and get my team organized. Whenever I'd have a, a management meeting, I'd, I'd, I'd love to raise my hand and say, how many of you love to be led versus managed? How many love, love to, want to be managed? How many of you want to be led? None of my team wanted mm-hmm. to be managed. They all wanted to be led. I always used to ask them when we got global, I said, how many of you are in the same building as your boss? And uh, very few of them were. I said, does anybody wish they were in, in the building with their boss? And none of them would raise their hand. <laughs> they know how to get a hold of the boss. They'll find them if they need them. And the last thing they want is them breathing down their neck. And, and uh, you know, the boss ought to be doing their deal and, and they're doing, you know, their deal. So. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. I was, uh, you know, was watching or listening to a, a keynote that you gave at, um, I think it was Entrepreneur Endeavors, uh, maybe eight or so years ago. And, you know, you, you mentioned the whole controversial, you know, being controversial, but being right. Because if you're controversial and wrong, you're just stupid. Right. Um, you know, and I, I was, I w- I'm interested how you got to, I mean, that's a very confident 
position to take, right? I think there's a lot of uh, people that want to validate what they're doing before they take a stance, right? Uh, and and if I'm interpreting kind of the, the essence of what you're saying there is that one, you've got to know your space, you've got to know your market, your customers, you know, whatever the case may be, and, and be educated to a point. But also there's got to be, you know, in that whole being controversial piece, there's got to be a, a high level of intuition that goes into that. And, and I'm curious how in your experience and career and, and coming up, how did you develop that, that level of confidence and intuition to, to be controversial and right? So there's, there's two parts to it, uh, multiple parts to that. First of all, you don't always want to be right. If you're always right, you're not, you're not trying enough. It's like if you ski and never fall, you're not ever going to get better. So mm-hmm. we had, you know, ready, ready, fire, re-aim is, mm-hmm. is, is a better way to think of that. I, I, like I said, the wrong answer is better than no answer at all. So I, I, we can't, in our business, we couldn't deal with people who had to go do all the research and hire consultants and, and make sure they had the right answer. Uh, I don't mind people having a legitimate justification or even gut feel for what they're going to go do. But if it's my gut feel versus your gut feel, if you have no data, we're going to go with my answer. Data's king, right? Kirk could be in the boss. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so again, none of this was taught at business school. That's not how they teach. They go off and they do analytics. And I mean, I don't know what they do. Uh, (laughs) There's no tenured professor that can teach me about the market economy, the invisible hand and have lunch or be lunch. You know, professors just do lunch. Uh, So, you know, so you're not going to learn this at school. You're going to learn by doing wisdom. Intuition comes through experience and experience comes with time. And the way to compress time is to work 15 hours a day and to have your boss move you into a job. As soon as you figure out the job you're in, have them put you somewhere else and dunk you 30 feet under and let you swim to the top. As soon as you get a good breath of air, move you somewhere else. Because, you know, hanging out there for a while after you figure the job out doesn't really expand your wisdom and knowledge and experience as much as dunking you into a new, you know, People say, Sky, you, you know, aren't you worried that working as many hours as you do that you're not living a very balanced life? And I would say, hey, listen, I spend time on manufacturing issues, sales issues, marketing issues, tech support. I got a very balanced life. I'm, I'm all over the place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, well, I think me personally, a lot of what you're saying, I, I can relate to because, you know, as Drew knows that, you know, my, my first job out of college, you know, not even graduating was playing professional baseball. And so you know, after playing baseball, I had to go back and, and finish the degree, which, you know, I was fortunate to, to get a business degree and move on. But, you know, where we sit today and having conversations around, you know, technologies and stuff like that, a lot of these technologies I didn't even know existed. But the experiences that I had, you know, playing baseball from all the different people that I had to interact with, you know, the different coaches and managers that, you know, some of them were managers, some of them were leaders, Um, you know, seeing what went on, but also realizing that there is a little bit of a political atmosphere there. But ultimately, you know, there's got to be action, you know, because inaction is still inaction. And to your point, it's the wrong action. Um, You know, so a lot of this stuff is, is really hitting home for me here. And, you know, I I find it fascinating because obviously we have very different backgrounds and you have a wealth of experience and have been very, very successful, but it's just interesting to hear that, 
you know, for, for me, not knowing, you know, specifically what a data center was or even what a microchip was 10 years ago to now we're sitting here talking to, to you about it is, is just fascinating how it proves your point of not everything you learn is in a business school. Other than people who get really technical degrees like doctors and, and STEM, if you go to anybody who's successful in, in any, any of their endeavors and say, how much of what you learned did you learn in college? The, the plus or minus 2%, the answer is 1%. Yeah. And people, unfortunately, we, we just refuse to, I mean, I, I wish I could learn branding like the colleges do. You know, the, the Harvard brand is the most undeserved high-end brand ever. People have babies. They put a Harvard shirt on them. You know, they, they raise the kid, work hard, you can go to Harvard. And then they go to Harvard and they spend 75 grand a year for four years for a degree that has absolutely no hireability or whatever, other than the fact that they're going to hire you because you're from Harvard, so you must have been smart. Um, and not one college has ever... Uh, promise to raise your IQ one, one point, name one. I mean, they, if you're lucky, you don't burn too many brain cells and get too addicted and too many diseases where your, your IQ drops too much. And, and then as soon as you graduate, after you paid all this money, you're in the alumni thing and they're hammering you. And then you want to leave a bunch of money to them when you die. I just don't understand how they get that brand, uh, to be so powerful. And, and, uh, you know, I, I, everybody asks me, so, you know, what do you think of all those guys that are ahead of you out there? Like Jobs, Ellison, Gates, Palmer, uh, um, Zuckerberg, they all dropped out. I finished my degrees. That's why I'm here talking to you guys. The opportunity cost of going to school was massive, at least as a baseball player. School was a great farm team where yep. they would pay you to be on a farm team. Absolutely. Uh, and, and so that made more sense. But yeah. uh, anyhow, that's, that's a little digression there that is one of my pet peeves. Certainly COVID is making, uh, as my three uh, youngest boys are doing correspondence school at Stanford and uh, Baylor, they're doing it all online from Palm yep. Springs and uh, <laughs> they're getting great weather and I'm paying full tuition for a correspondence school so that they can watch videos of tenured professors. Uh, it, it, yikes. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm interested, you know, in, so, you know, Brad's wife is, is a, is a principal and, um, you know, so we, we all kind of have you know, some ties into education. Um, I'm curious what your thoughts on uh, are we doing education right? You know, I mean, no. if college if college adds no value to you uh, from your perspective, from a life standpoint, other than having the piece of paper to hang on the wall and the entrance into the interview and those kinds of things, how should we be educating people? You know, I, I'm I'm curious. Well, first of all, I think the years from 18 to 22 are your most heavily hormone. Uh, I got no other cares in the world. I've not been tainted by the way we did things. Um, you're a digital native or a new tech native like nobody else. Uh, you have a enormous amounts of energy. Uh, ignorance is bliss, and you're willing to work 90 hours a week. That's the time we should be sending people out. And if you look at Michael Dell, Larry Ellison, you look at Zuckerberg, you look at the Google boys, all the rest, all of the, you look in any sport, any, any profession, artists, mathematicians, musicians, uh, athletes, all the rest of it, your prime years are 18 to 20, 
24. That's because our life expectancy was 24 in the blink of an evolutionary eye. We are, we are geared to be the most creative and functional and productive in those ages. And what do we do? We lock you up in college in a little dorm room with uh, COVID, with uh, all kinds of STDs. We lock you up with, with tenured professors who are going to teach you that, you know, the private sector has nothing to do with and is, is the problem to everything. And we give you degrees that are absolutely there's no chance of paying off your student loan debt with the money you spent on those degrees. I think we should ban people from going to college at the age of 18 until they're 24 so that they work for six years. Then they can go back to school and tell the teacher, no, that doesn't work. I've been there. <laughs> and it was very really different. Right. I worked for two years and went back to business school and the professor was telling me what to do in a strike and that, you know, it's, it's important to, uh, you know, park in the same parking lot. And I said, no, no, when I was in a strike, you didn't do that because you get beat up. The UAW <laughs> didn't take names. Right. Know, and I'm like, are you kidding me? So I was, I was quite, quite impressed at the lack of, after just two years of working, at how much more I knew about what was going on than the professors in business school. Now, I love my two years. They were really bright guys. I hung out with them. We had a ball. Uh, but it was the opportunity cost of that was actually quite stunning. Here's what I think needs to happen. The classroom has to flip. And we're doing that with Curriki, with the technologies we're building to allow people to build distance learning curriculum that's engaging, fortnight dopamine, uh, Game of Thrones bingeable, but really high quant- content, self-paced, on-demand, AR, VR, ML, AI, um, all of the rest of it. We're, we're going to build out uh, the components, if you will, think of the Linux for building applica- uh, learning applications and experiences. We're going to make it free, open. All the modules will be available and components or the full platform. We'll, we'll make it all free, open source. And then we have a common architecture, sort of like iOS is a common architecture for mobile apps. Linux mm-hmm. is a common architecture for cloud apps. Uh, Java was uh, a, an architecture for write once, run anywhere apps. We're going to build the platform for open, scalable learning experiences that are interoperable. And then think about K-12 having a flipped classroom. And then the kids go to school to do the community things like sports, performing arts, uh, visual arts, labs, science labs, recess, lunch, uh, debate club, robot club, all of the things that you need to be with other folks. That's what we do at school. All of the learning things that you do staring at a whiteboard are going to be done in the flipped classroom, self-paced, and using Zoom and other technologies like that. So we're going to we're gonna th- throw this all into a very, very different mix than the one we have today. It's time that the whiteboard and Blackboard gave way to a really, truly digital experience. Oh, that's I mean, great. That makes sense. Yeah. And obviously, I think we're all getting, you know, not necessarily your version of it, but we're all getting a version of that flipped classroom now with where we sit today. We're, do, we're doing it right now. Yeah. We're doing it right yeah. now. And you know what? I I sort of like social distancing. Now I don't have to shake hands or hug people. And if I don't really <laughs> like them, I go, hey, yeah. Yeah. I really cough right now. I'm loving it, man. <laughs> oh, man. That's, that's awesome. So obviously we've touched a little bit on the education piece and, you know, some real world work experience. And, you know, we, we've mentioned a few times, you know, the coronavirus and COVID and the pandemic. 
um, you know, from, oh, is, there, is there a pandemic going on? Uh, apparently, <laughs> um, you know, but from a, from a business perspective, and I'm sure you get to see this and I know Drew and I have seen this a little bit of, you know, it, it ties back into, you know, there's some people who have hit the pause button on business. There's, you know, some people are going forth and we have to commit to certain things. You know, how do you see, you know, certain leaders having to pick up and learn and make sure that they move and then greater more. So what do you see the kind of macro, you know, expectations or macro developments coming out of this? Well, first of all, I think um, that we've certainly decided which businesses are essential and which aren't. And I would say to every young kid, I would, I would carefully look at that because you know what baseball and my son's a pro golfer on the PGA tour. They aren't essential. Are they? No. Shut down. Just shut down. And you know what? That's not costing the world other than driving all the rest of us, you know, crazy because we, we do need escapes and the escapes are valuable. But uh, I, I would, I would, if I was a kid growing up, I'd start looking at essential uh, industries and jobs and saying, no, you know, that's what I'm going to get trained for because people are getting uh, hit pretty aggressively with, uh, with layoffs and furloughs and closing things down. I don't think we're going to come out of this thing going to restaurants as much. I don't think we're going to be uh, visiting large stadiums as much. I think the television is going to get better and better at having interactive experiences and all the rest of it. Who knows? Someday maybe you can scream and your, your TV will have a microphone and that will be broadcast in a, um, in a, uh, a uh, speaker system around the greens at every PGA tour event. So if you say, I mean, who knows how this is all going to change. Maybe all the stadiums will just be big sound systems where you can scream from your own, from your own couch. <laughs> on, a delay. Yeah, on a delay. On a delay. We don't need anybody yelling in the middle of a backswing. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, getting a drum when the catcher's throwing a sign out there. Yeah, <laughs> don't, don't get me started on that one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, who knows how this thing is all going to play out? Now, the real question is, there's a bunch of companies that got chosen, and that's uh, Amazon, Zoom, uh, UPS, FedEx. They got chosen mm-hmm. to go overtime, and they have the most wonderful opportunities, Netflix. Yep. But then there's the other ones who are just like, now what do I do? Like the retailers and all of the entertainment, all the hotels, all the rest of it. So there's going to be a potential fall off for the ones who are doing well, who are going to face, oh, now how do I slow down? And then there's the other ones who are going to try and hopefully build back up. What about the cruise lines? Would you, I mean, yeah. what I do, mean you put, do you put your, do you, do you put your, your mom in a nursing home? There's just so many more questions that are going to be asked in a different way. And, and I think every business leader has got to just understand you have to be beyond nimble. I was just on a board board call with an advisee uh, that I, I'm, I, I'm doing, a, uh, talking about, hey, I had a really good Q1. I said March was a little low, but here's our low, medium, and high-end COVID guesses. And we think that the bottom will be this quarter and that it'll come back. And I said, hmm, I think you need to plan for the bottom to be Q4. 
and you ought to have a complete contingency and you may be just, you have no idea what's going to happen to the banking system. You have no idea what's going to happen uh, when this thing resurges. You have no, you have so many unknowns. I call it an infodemic and a panic demic. Because we, yeah, we, we do both in this pandemic. And, um, you know, who knows? There's people who argue that it's nothing more than a, a flu without a vaccine and that we'll have a vaccine soon. And there's others who are saying, hey, we're never going to get a vaccine. This is going to be with us. And we're in a whole new we're in a whole new world. So we just don't know. And I think when we when you get thrown a big curveball like this, you have to be beyond nimble and uh, you have to uh, make sure you have the attention of every employee. I always told every employee we hired, listen, things are going to change above, below, and around you faster than any place you've ever worked. Get used to it. And here's another thing that I think is important for leaders to tell their people. The reason why they don't move along as fast as you like is because they don't like change. That's what you think. That's not true. They don't mind change. What they don't like is not doing a good job. And what employees do is if they do the job for a while, they get really good at it. They get very productive at it. They make their numbers. They make very few mistakes. And they go home every day and they tell their spouse or their kids or their buddies, I killed it at work today. I, I had the most output I've ever had. Then you walk in the next day and you change their job. They walk in and all of a sudden they don't know how to do it. They've never done it before. They're making mistakes. Their productivity falls and they feel really frustrated. And the boss is all over. Come on, come on, get it going, get it going. Do it right, do it right. And they're managing it, micromanaging. And they go home and they want to kick the dog. That's why people don't like change. So you have to, if you, if you come in with that mindset and that understanding and say to them, hey, you're going to goof up. I got it. We're going to get better. You're going to come down the experience curve. I'm here for you. I've got faith in you. I need, I don't need a second baseman right now. I need an outfielder. You're going to drop some balls, but I don't care. You're an athlete. You can do this. And if you tell them you're the one person I know that can go learn that new job, that's very different, a very different environment. And you'll see the company change and move much more quickly. And I think that's, everybody has to be a utility player. Uh, and you got to learn to play offense, defense, and uh, multiple positions in this new world. Or you're going to get furloughed. And when it comes time to get rehired, you're not going to get rehired. I tell every employee, you're about 20% skills obsolete every year. So after five years, if you don't retrain, you're going to be 100% skills obsolete and you're out of there. And it's 49% the company's job to retrain you. It's 51% your job to get retrained. The company should be there to help you. But Bottom line, personal responsibility, it's your job and you better stay on top of the skills world. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a great point. And I mean, for me, it ties back into, you know, being led versus being managed. You know, yeah, you can change some stuff up. But if if I tell you that, you know, hey, I need you to do this because this is where where we need it to. And I know that you can do that great. You know, like you just instilled some confidence in that employee and it gives them that direction. And, you know, they're, they're not going about it going, Oh my gosh, this is outside of my comfort zone. What if, what if, what if it's, Hey, yeah, this is outside of my comfort zone, but you know, the people in charge have faith in me that I can do this. Like, great. Now I have that passion. I have that bought in and, you know, like now I'm following in the direction we're all going in that same motion and, and pushing that. That's, that's awesome. So there's a couple of characteristics that I look for in, in recruiting. You didn't ask a question. I'm just taking you where I want to go. Go for it. <laughs> but, you know, it's, um, the, the, the one is if you're interviewing somebody and you say, why are you thinking of leaving the company? And they say, oh, it's so political over there. I 
quickly evaluate whether I want to continue, especially if I'm bringing the person into a leadership role. If you think that human nature is all about politics, then you're, you don't like people. But if, and if you're leaving a place because you don't like the fact that there are humans there, you better be hiring a programmer who never has to talk to anybody. Because, <laughs> because people who like people call it human nature. Mm-hmm. Hey, did you see what so is? Oh, yeah, that's that's what we do as humans. Let me go talk to them. That's somebody who likes people, understands human nature. Or the person goes, oh, that guy's so political. All he wants, all he cares is about himself. That's somebody who doesn't like people and shouldn't yeah. be in a leadership role. And if you can ferret that out in the interview process, um, that's, that's really key. The second one's a little harder to ferret out. And we have been raised by a whole bunch of... Um, government schools and government tenured professors and all the rest of it that teach you that you're a victim and they don't teach personal responsibility like they should. And there's something about, maybe I'm an old guy and everybody's always felt like that, but in my day, you know, we had personal responsibility. We got on our bike, we took off and we were supposed to be back by dinner or we got clobbered. Right? Right. And then the rest of the day, we were personally responsible for what we did. You know, now we have, there's this uh, gal named Lenore who's from New York and she's written this book about the, the bubble kids that we're raising and they don't, they don't take personal responsibility. They've been sheltered. They've been scheduled. They've been whatever. And, uh, you know, I, I learned, you know, if you shoot a shotgun off and you're 12 years old and you put the shotgun butt right there, it's going to knock you over and bruise you about this big. I had to take <laughs> personal responsibility because I couldn't tell my dad we took his shotgun out and shot up a beehive. That would be <laughs> true story. Right? So you learn personal responsibility uh, and, and finding employees who want to take personal responsibility for their career paths, personal responsibility for their education levels, personal responsibility for their interpersonal relationships inside the company, all the rest of it. You find one who has personal responsibility, you got to keep her. And you got somebody that you will, you will put on any project and know that, that you, they're not going to come back with a bunch of excuses. They're going to, they're going to keep you informed and they're going to ask for advice when they need help, all the rest. You got to keep her. So finding somebody who likes people and accepts personal responsibility, everybody's smart. Some are smarter than others, but uh, everybody's smart enough if they have those two characteristics. So I have a question as a, as a dad of a young kid, I have a seven-year-old and then twin two-year-olds and Brad's got younger kids as well. Keep your fingernails short. That's all I say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do that on my own. Yeah. Uh, uh, for, you know, I, because I, I, I feel like I have a bit of an old soul in that, you know, I'm, uh, we try to instill personal responsibility in our kids and uh, I, I don't know if I'm failing or succeeding or not, but from your perspective, why is it, and maybe I need to go read the, the bubble kids that we're raising book, but why is our society so prone to, to raise entitled or victimized kids? What, what's changed in the last two generations of, from, you know, our generations to the, the kids that are, are coming now? I, mean, I know the, millenn- the millennials take it in the shorts as being the entitled well, ones, but it's I, not I, just I, them. I, I will get a lot of hate mail. I don't care. Bomb my Twitter, everybody. Let me have it. But, uh, you know, I've got some experience and I've been watching this for a while, but I think that we have a, a political system, uh, a democratic capitalist, a democratic republic capitalist system that has gradually getting scope creep from uh, the, the, what the government is doing. And, and when, I was a, when I was born, the federal budget 
was $70 billion. Now it's $4.7 trillion plus another $10 trillion for the bailout. Right. Do you realize in my lifetime what has happened in scope creep? And, you know, everybody says, well, those are those dollars. Well, no, those were those dollars, and they're the same dollars today. We just have depreciated the living daylights out of it through quantitative easing, printing money, deficit spending, and devaluing the dollar. So they're the same dollar. Don't give me that argument. I'm an economist. I know what I'm talking about. Those dollars are the same dollars. We've just trashed them. We've just trashed them. The government has. And then you put government sector union teachers, government schools, tenured professors uh, in, and, and they all teach, let the government do you do it for you. And then there's the media piece. And I always wondered why did the media swing left towards lack of personal responsibility and towards you're the victim, the man got you, you know, you've been, you've been, uh, uh, biased against. And I thought the reason why is who wants to pick up a newspaper in the morning and say, Hey, you're out of a job. You're living in a shack. It's because you smoked dope. You drank, you didn't go to school. You chased all the girls. You played football all day long. You didn't learn anything. And now you're out of a job and you got nothing. You chose to do that instead of Oh man, did you get screwed? They demand all day. Those companies, they just want profits. They laid you off for no good reason, whatever. People want to read that because they just don't want to read that they blew it. And so I think if you want to keep your readership up, you can't be dad or mom right? and say, go to bed, you know, don't drink, you know, all of those sorts of things. We've already got mom and dad. The other thing is we don't have mom and dad. We don't have two biological parents in enough households anymore. I think that's a problem. And then I think uh, parents try to get too involved, step away from the kids. We would tell our kids, we had four of them, and we had to play zone defense. We couldn't, we couldn't manage them. And uh, we would tell them, listen, this was sort of child psychology. They all loved, they, all four boys played hockey, golf, swam, played tennis, all kinds of sports. And we would say, listen, you can't play sports until your homework's done. And we're not doing your homework. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, we just sounds very that. familiar. We just that. And, <laughs> yeah. and they brought me and said, I don't know, you better call your teacher. I, I don't know math. You know, just you go figure it out. And that taught them personal responsibility. It made sports seem really exciting to them. They worked really hard so they could go play sports. And uh, we told them if you didn't get straight A's, you don't get to play sports. And that was it. They all got straight A's. It was funny how they just all got straight A's because they wanted to play hockey. They wanted to hit golf balls. So, um, you know, it's... I don't know. That it was pretty simple that, to do that. It's it, making of the sausage is a lot more complicated than that. I'm oversimplifying, but uh, in general, I think those are the things. Those are why the media, I think, government schools uh, and unions and uh, the scope creep of the government. Uh, you know, and, and when my dad was raising us, he said, "I better make enough money so I can provide health care for my kids." Not, I'm going to just goof off so that the government can provide health care for my kids. That's a very, very different mindset for somebody raising a family. And if yeah. you don't have to provide health care, you don't have to provide uh, unemployment insurance, you don't have to, you provide loans and all the rest of it to your kids, then you're not going to apply some personal responsibility on your kids either. So I think it's a very wicked social. Um, circle we get into. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I think the other thing that, that plays into it, and, and I, and I think it, it goes beyond just parenting. I think it goes into, I mean, my, my experience in, in my career, I think we all have this massive fear of failing. Right. Um, and those of those that are successful and highly successful, to your point, uh, are the ones that are okay with failing because failing gets you closer to the next success. Right. Uh, and I think that we have this fear of, of failing and I'm, I'm kind of leaning back into my, I have a psychology and therapy background. So, um, you know, I, I think that, that, I think that plays into it as well. As parents, we don't want our kids to fail. And so we, de- depending on, on your perspective, I think we ins- sometimes insulate our, our kids more than we should. And we don't allow them to fail and, and they need to learn how to fail so that when they get older, um, totally, you know, totally. you're, you're never, you're not always going to be successful. I mean, to your point, you, you, you have been wildly successful, but you would probably, I would imagine have said you've had just as many failures as you had, have had successes or Wait, more. Have, have them play golf. The, yeah. perfect, the perfect score is 18. Nobody's ever gotten there. Yeah. Right. Most of the shots you hit don't go in the hole. And <laughs> most of the shots you hit don't feel very good. Or you think I should have done better than that. And with me, about 20% of them uh, result in a tomahawk or a helicopter or a expletive deleted. Uh, golfers will know what I'm talking about. Yep. Right? And, yep. and so I fail a lot. And you know what? You enter a tournament. My son's playing golf is the most unbelievable meritocracy. Nobody else can hit the ball for him. I said, Maverick, you've got a Stanford degree, management science and engineering, academic All-American. You're in the Silicon Valley. Go make a bunch of money. He says, I want to see how good I can get. And I want to test myself against the best. And I want, I want, I think what he wanted, I'm not, I'm putting words in his mouth. He's never said this to me. I think he said, I think he wanted to say, I want to do this on my own without anybody Mm -hmm. saying, his dad got him where he was because nobody right. can say his dad hit that drive for him. And in fact, anybody who's seen me hit a drive will say, there's no way his dad could hit a drive like that. <laughs> but it's the ultimate meritocracy. He goes into a tournament where everybody in the world has a chance to qualify. So mm-hmm. only the top 156 get into it and only one wins. There's only one yeah. winner. Everybody else is a loser. That is, right. un- I mean, talk about dealing with failure and understanding failure. And if you listen to and watch the stories on the, you know, you, you can't blame a teammate. You right. can't ride a teammate. You're out there all alone. You can blame famous. a caddy. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose the caddy doesn't hit many shots, you know. That's right. That's and right. you are the CEO of that two-person team. So, you know, I, I, That's think, right. I think having kids play sports uh, and competing uh, and they're all different levels. And we got to stop worrying about trying to get kids to go to college to get a degree. The beauty is if we eliminated college sports, we would stop having kids go through high school, wasting their whole high school, hoping to get a scholarship. And in fact, you usually have to spend more money to get the scholarship than you would on the tuition for when you get there. So, uh, you know, it should be mandatory that you have to compete so that you learn to lose. And, and it's, you know, this participation trophy thing, I think, is a real problem. Yeah, yeah. I could go for hours and hours on, on those two topics alone. <laughs> I'm an old guy. Go ahead, Twitter. Light me up. You know, I don't know what I'm talking about. I, I, uh, I'm, I'm wacko. I'm insensitive. I don't care. But I think people who know me, um, you know, I believe um, I believe in uh, uh, 
charity, but I believe in doing it anonymously because I think one of my board members said that's the highest form of charity is to do it anonymously because I'm not doing it for anybody's good except who I'm giving it to, not for mine or my companies or anything. Drives me nuts when companies give money away because, you know, unless it's, unless it's for the communities that they're involved in, but, you know, I, I, I think shareholders should be the ones that get to give their money away. So uh, I think uh, businesses, as horrible as this sounds, their job is to give a return to their shareholders. So those shareholders can give money to the charities that they care about not the ones that the CEO cares about. Um, so, you know, there's, there's lots of, lots of beliefs that, that having a capitalist, I'm a raging capitalist. I'm a believer in personal responsibility. I'm a believer in, you know, we should have two biological parents, not a village, raise a child wherever possible. You know, those are, those are considered really personal responsibility. Hey, if, if you can get sick of COVID, you better hide. I don't know that necessarily that should be mandated. Um, and there's a big disagreement on that. I, I, I get it. I understand. I hear the logical arguments for it. But I think liberty and freedom and personal responsibility are what has made America great and what has uh, allowed our system to bring more people out of poverty than any other system. Capitalism is having personal responsibility uh, and having the invisible hand at work. Uh, so I just am a believer in that and, um, and not in centralized control. Yeah, no, that I, I agree wholeheartedly. Don't do um, that. You'll get, you'll get bombed on Twitter too. I don't have a Twitter. Nobody knows me. So it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> I have like four followers. Uh, <laughs> so that, that's, that's the, uh, that's the beauty of, of being uh, anonymous. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not yet famous instead of being formerly famous. <laughs> there you go. Um, so I, I know we're kind of getting toward the end of our time and Scott, I really wanted to make sure that we give plenty of time to talk about, uh, we hit on it a little bit, but on Kariki and birdies for education and what you're doing there. And I, you know, I, I think it's so timely. I mean, what you're talking about in terms of online education and those kinds of things with, you know, what we're, uh, what we're in the middle of, uh, you know, we're, uh, you yeah. know, our, our, our educators are doing the best they can with the tools that they have, but I, I think we would they all, all got, uh, they got blindsided because all of a yeah. sudden now parents are at home going absolutely, absolutely nuts. I, how am I supposed to teach these kids? The tools aren't there. The curriculum isn't online and interactive and, a, and, a, and an active experience. And the teachers are trying to do it over zoom and the, 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 you know, the third graders are like making faces so that other people laugh. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on. So, yeah, yeah. and for a raging capitalist, here I am doing a dot org. And I've right. been working on it for <laughs> 10 plus years. So I just believe that, especially in the K-12 space, that's not a right. Right is something you can give everyone without taking from anyone. So education mm -hmm. is not a right. But it's something I feel very strongly should be available to people for free if we can pull it off. So I'm getting donors from everywhere, all walks of life, donating money so we can provide a development environment, an authoring tool so that like you're creating a radio show, I want to be able to create games of calculus, a 15 part mini series professionally created by a, a documentary a movie producer, or maybe even Time Warner at AT&T will produce games of calculus and we'll have a, a gamer who will create the gamification and leaderboarding and real-time scoring and, and competitions in it so that 
you, it'll be as dopamine addictive as Fortnite, and and as as bingeable as games of throne Game of Thrones. And at eleven o'clock, the parents are going to be saying at, P, at eleven p.m. Johnny, Jane, step away from the computer. You're going to bed now because they're climbing leaderboards and they're getting badges and they're racing through high school at the age of 14, you know, and all the rest of it. And then they go into school. So we're building these components. We're building out AI components and machine learning components. And I want it all to dump into a, uh, a data ocean so that we can do the chatbot and, and uh, the uh, uh, recommendation engine are informed by AI and this data ocean of all students around the world. And instead of a data puddle, because that's what AI does now, it works on a data puddle. The bigger the ocean, the better the AI is in the machine learning. I want AR and VR. I want collaboration tools that make Zoom look complicated. You know, I, uh, you know, I, w- I want to see uh, a, I want to see a, uh, and we're building out the implementation of a component that will be your achievement portfolio. So everything you do from the time you're three to the time you're 300 gets dumped into maybe it's blockchain, secure, private, encrypted, personal achievement portfolio transcript. Instead of having SAT have it, instead of having your high school or your college have it or your, your, or your business have it or the testing, whatever, you are going to own it. And you can share to this point about failing. You can share only what you want to, to a prospective employer, to a prospective school or trade association. Just show them the good stuff. If you tried calculus and you failed because you're not good at it, they don't need to know that. Yeah. You know, if you're president of the United States, you can show them nothing. My view is I want people to try calculus. And if you fail, it's no, no harm done. Sure. No foul. You know, and, and, and so we're building out all of these little components and we'll actually build it and assemble it into a school so that every organization become, can become an e-school. So the Carpentry Trade Association can, the Catholic Church can, uh, the, the charter school can, the LA Unified School District can, uh, Stanford or uh, a homeschooler can tilt up their own little e-school. We want to make it so easy and we want anybody to be able to use these authoring tools to use all these components that, that bring about federated uh, shared um, common, you know, the, if you use a mobile app, they're all following the same style guide. So it's not like you have to relearn everything when you use a new mobile app. That's what iOS does with their Apple style guide. We want to have a style guide for how to build really great interactive learning experiences. We want it to be free and open to everybody to every Everybody, we want Khan Academy to use this. We want the Stanford and ASU schooling environments to use it. We want every high school to be able to use it. So we want it to be free and open sourced and available to anybody to innovate on top of. We don't charge for it and uh, away you go. We might charge businesses a little bit to use it just to help fund it so we don't have to always go after uh, benevolent uh, contributors. Uh, And, you know, the biggest thing I worry about with COVID right now, uh, from Kariki's perspective, is that donors aren't going to have enough free cash flow to, to share with us. So my, my son, uh, Maverick, is doing Birdies for Education. Go to www.birdiesforeducation.com and sign up. And for every birdie he gets, you can pledge X dollars uh, to that. He's trying to raise a million dollars. It's going to be less than that because the uh, PGA Tour season got cut in half practically uh, this year. Yeah. But uh, he's raising money because he really believes in this cause also. 
So are you guys live right now or do you have a projected date when you're going to be launching Kariki? Is it going to be a phased rollout so, so or Kariki, what's the... Yeah, Kariki phase one is there now and we have for all you homeschoolers out there, we have 250,000 free and open source learning assets that are available right now, free download. So it's the Google website for free uh, textbooks, uh, some curriculum that's been scope and sequence. We got worksheets, science projects, videos, everything that you can imagine there. So just search on whatever you want, third grade math, fourth grade social studies, whatever, it's all there. But it's a big box of Lego blocks that don't work together, don't have AI machine learning, they aren't all integrated. So now we're going to build the components on which you would build those 250,000 components going forward and do it in the new age interactive way. So we've, we've dropped down. So our customer is not the, the student and the, the teacher, like or the student, the teacher, and the parents right now. Our uh, new target audience going forward will be the content creator and the schools okay. who want to tilt up an e-capability. So we're getting more into the weeds of the technology that nobody should have to deal with. It should just be easy. I mean, you don't, when, when you use your iPhone, you're not into the operating system or the, the microprocessor or the kernel or any of that kind of stuff. You're right. just, you're just using the environment. And so we want to, we want to make that. If somebody wants to develop a, a really neat new curriculum a piece of content courseware today, they have to start off by doing everything that we're doing. 70, 80% of their cost is doing that and only 15, 20% producing the actual document or capability or experience. So we want to, we want to just take that all down to near zero for everybody and, and uh, have the, have the world sort of like if everybody spoke English, it would save a lot of translation. Absolutely. Well, so Scott, if our listeners are interested in connecting with you on social media and the work that you're doing, how can they find you? Where can they connect with you? Um, you can uh, DM me on Twitter or I'm on LinkedIn, uh, but you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm open and available and uh, excited to talk with anybody. If you want to argue with me, I'm really don't uh, not that I don't enjoy a good argument, but I'm not interested in arguing. I'm interested in moving forward and, 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 and getting things done, both in the .org and the .com world. Awesome. Yeah, well, Scott, you know, I, I think I speak on behalf of, you know, us at TMG Core. This has been an absolute pleasure. You know, thank you for your time. And, you know, we, we definitely look forward, you know, Drew and I personally with the curriculum piece and where our kids are in education and looking at it. And obviously with my wife being in education, this has been incredibly valuable, you know, me personally, for sure. And, you know, I look forward to seeing, you know, what comes out of that. And, you know, obviously, I hope we can talk soon and see the developments on that and, you know, checking in on where the world is. Great. Well, keep up the good work at TMG Core. I'm enjoying my advisory role. And what you and JD and the team are doing is is, is really awesome. It's uh, very eco. It's very critical, especially as everybody's moving to the cloud. Uh, data center innovation is, is critical to uh, being able to deliver all of these services to people who uh, can't go out or shouldn't go out or don't want to go out uh, and would, it would, would like to bring that into uh, their own personal space. So uh, you guys are doing uh, really, really great stuff. Very, very impressed. And uh, it's, it's an essential job. As we say, <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. thank you. Thank you. Well, that's going to do it for us here today on the edge. Uh, don't forget to subscribe anywhere you pick up your favorite podcast and leave us a five-star review there. You can also find us at www.theedgetmgcore.com. So thanks so much. We'll catch you next time. And remember the edge will go as far as you take it. Thanks, Scott.